Looking to the future as an instructor in higher education can seem daunting, especially as we plan for a more equitable future. In this episode, we discuss some of those challenges, search for hope, and discuss ways forward that are ethical, humane, and flexible. Thanks for joining us for Tea for Teaching, an informal discussion of innovative and effective practices in teaching and learning. This podcast series is hosted by John Keane, an economist, and Rebecca Mushter, a graphic designer. Together, we run the Center for Excellence in Learning and Teaching at the State University of New York at Oswego. Our guest today is Jesse Stommel. Jesse is the executive director of the Hybrid Pedagogy nonprofit organization, an organization he founded in 2011. He is also the founder of the Digital Pedagogy Lab. Jesse recently served as the executive director of the Division of Teaching and Learning Technologies at the University of Murray, Washington. He is a co-author with Sean Michael Morris of An Urgency of Teachers, The Work of Critical Digital Pedagogy, and with Dorothy Kim, the co-editor of Disrupting the Digital Humanities. Welcome, Jesse. Hi, it's good to be with you all. Looking forward to our chat. Today's teas are... I'm actually drinking peach honey sparkling water. Is sort of tea infused. Okay, that's good. That counts. Also, it sounds really good. <laughs> I have ginger peach black tea. And I have a decaf Assam. I feel jealous of both of your teas. It's sad that we don't have you in person in our office where we have a giant selection that you could choose from. We'll send you a picture so you know what you missed out on. <laughs> well, we'll have to do that in the future. Yeah, definitely. They're slightly aged tea compared yeah, to where they were when we last saw them about a year and a few months back. But they are there and some of them we'll probably have to dispose of. <laughs> You've been a really important voice on behalf of inclusive teaching and very vocal on topics like trauma-infused pedagogy, designing with care in mind ungrading, and equity more generally. What does it mean to be an ethical instructor as we approach the fall, still amidst the last stages of the pandemic? I wrote a piece with Sarah Goldrick Rabb a few years ago. And for folks who don't know, Sarah Goldrick Rabb is an expert in higher education policy, particularly focusing on food and housing insecurity. And she and I wrote a piece for the Chronicle of Higher Education called Teaching the Students We Have, Not the Students We Wish We Had. And ultimately, the thing that that piece charged me to do, and I've been working with Sarah for, I think, close to eight years now, and her work and the research that she's done has really put a kind of specificity to my work on inclusive pedagogies and critical pedagogies that has charged me to think really carefully about how the material circumstances of our students affect their learning experience and also how the material circumstances of teachers affect their teaching experience. And so if I think about how we begin to move back into classrooms, to find our way back to our institutions, to find our way back to the collaborations and colleagues we may have worked really closely with, I think that the key is for us to do really deep work thinking about who are our students, what do they need to be successful. How have they been affected by the last 18 months? And to do that same work with ourselves and our colleagues, ask ourselves, who are we as teachers? What do we need to be successful? And I think institutions have a charge that they have to be really careful about how they, quote unquote, pivot back to business as usual. 
I don't think there's a neat and tidy pivot back. And I don't think business as usual is the appropriate place for us to turn to at this moment. So for institutions to ask hard questions of themselves, interrogate the things that they may have done to exclude many of the people who found themselves struggling during the pandemic, the things they did to exclude those students and faculty members well before the pandemic, to assure that they don't continue the kind of exclusive practices that I've seen so many institutions coming to grips with in the last 18 months. I really appreciate the focus that you've put on both students and also caring about colleagues and making sure that we're being reciprocal and thinking about each other as humans and not just robots that we work with or something. In this conversation of getting back to campuses in the fall, what can we do to continue to humanize this practice with our colleagues too? You just kind of focused a little bit on students, but what does this mean when we're thinking about our colleagues and our relationships with our colleagues? I've been at several institutions that were struggling. So many of the people listening have found themselves at institutions that were struggling. I feel like the whole of public education is struggling at the current moment. But I've had some very specific circumstances at the last few institutions where I worked. About 10 years ago, I worked at Merrill Hurst University in Portland, Oregon, and Merrill Hurst University ended up closing down because of financial insecurity. And I was there a few years before they closed down and sort of dealing with the environment and watching the writing on the wall get darker and darker. After that, I went to University of Wisconsin-Madison, where the governor, Scott Walker, obliterated tenure across the system, taking one of the best public education state systems in our country and making it a mockery. And his decision had a rippling impact across the entire institution. And what I found in both of those situations was that in situations of precarity, situations of financial austerity, and in many cases, those are manufactured. And they're manufactured, especially in the case of Scott Walker, for very particular political reasons. In situations of austerity and precarity, people start to turn on each other. The sort of fabric of the community that existed prior to those moments that I found myself in at those institutions, I watched it erode and it eroded very quickly. And so the importance of being kind to one another, the importance of supporting each other, supporting our students, certainly, but also supporting our colleagues, and the importance of administrations focusing their efforts not on finding a new contract to a remote proctoring solution, which will do harm to all of the students and all of the teachers at the institution, but to focus their investment and their energy on finding ways to support the community that beats at the heart of the institution, that's ultimately what we have to do. And it's so important right now because I saw over the last 18 months, the same thing starting to happen at a lot of institutions. I saw institutions beginning to create cultures that were inhospitable to the kinds of work that we really want to do in education. I think one of the things that comes up in addition to food insecurity and housing insecurity with our students is that During the pandemic, it became visible, I think, for some folks that part-time faculty, adjunct faculty also have some of those insecurities that we often just don't address or think about. How do you see us as a larger higher education community starting to support those faculty more and really addressing those insecurities? What can we do? I think there's an easy answer that we should all commit to having a permanent full-time academic workforce at all of our institutions. And the truth is that when you look at what the expenses are of our institutions, there are ways to cut costs. Imagine an institution that has just spent $500,000, or if you're the state of 
Illinois just spent $23 million on a multi-year contract with a remote proctoring solution. Think about all of that money and how many adjunct or precarious faculty that money could support. If you think about the pedagogical benefits of making faculty full-time non-precarious versus the pedagogical deficit that gets created by creating a culture of suspicion at our institutions, there is money being spent on things doing harm to students that could be easily rechanneled towards something like certainly student support, supporting students' basic needs, or supporting the basic needs of faculty who are struggling. I think that there is a need right now for us to be really honest about how money is getting spent at institutions and how that money signals what our institutions value and what our institutions don't value. It is quite clear across the entirety of higher education that the vast majority of our institutions do not support teachers or the work of teaching. And that is quite clear via the mass adjunctification across our institutions, as well as the failure to properly invest in the preparation of teachers or pedagogical support for teachers. And that didn't change in the pandemic. I have not seen a huge amount of money suddenly getting funneled into faculty development and support at most institutions anyway. I think many of the things that we're talking about right now are all things that were happening before the pandemic. They just became more visible to some people during the pandemic. Yeah. And you mentioned food and housing insecurity and then alluded to other struggles that people were having, mental health issues. Certainly, we are all experiencing acute mental health issues because of the last 18 months. But there are so many people who are experiencing acute and chronic mental health issues prior to the pandemic that weren't getting properly addressed. And if you also think about disabled students and faculty and the ways that their needs were not being met prior to the pandemic, we figured out how to do remote work and remote teaching in the midst of the pandemic, or we figured out how to do it as best as each individual institution might have done, which is your mileage may vary, I guess. <laughs> but the truth is that there are so many faculty and students who are disabled in various ways who needed that kind of support well before the pandemic. On a positive note, though, didn't the pandemic help make some of these issues much more clear to faculty and administrators when they saw the problems that students had in continuing and when they recognized the need to provide support for faculty who didn't have computer access at home to even connect with their students remotely? Might that perhaps help lead to a change in mindset? On my Twitter bio, I am called an irascible optimist. That was a moniker given to me by Sean Michael Morris. And when he said that, I thought, that is indeed me. And I've worn that moniker ever since he gave it to me, a rascable optimist. I'll be honest that I have been less optimistic in the last 18 months. And I recognize I'm being less optimistic in this initial start to this conversation than I would have been if we had talked two years ago. And part of that is because of what I have seen over the last 18 months and the deep, deep struggles that I've seen so many of my students having and so many of my colleagues having and also the failures of so many state governments, the federal government, and institutions to really figure out what to do and how to handle this particular moment. So if I think about what we've learned, is that we've learned to listen to our gut. We've learned to acknowledge the things that we were already seeing. It's not like suddenly we saw new things over the last 18 months. We were already seeing them. And so we learned that we actually have to take action one of the sad things, and this is going to keep us maybe on the pessimistic place for just a few more minutes, 
is that I worry that so many institutions came to grips with these things because these things started to hit them in their pocketbook. And I hate that that was the reason that many institutions started to solve these issues. On the other hand, what I will say is that the kinds of conversations that I have had with fellow teachers over the last 18 months have felt incredible. I have felt more connected, even if my work has been harder than it ever has been. I have felt more connected to that work and more deeply connected to the colleagues that I work with. And I have found new connections because I have seen so many individual teachers struggling and working so hard to help meet the needs of our present moment. And I'm still fairly optimistic because of that. A lot of faculty were able to avoid some of those issues, even though they may have been generally aware of some of the challenges our students face. When they interacted with them in the classroom, it wasn't quite as clear as when they were hearing from students who were dealing with problems of just being at their class because they had work commitments or because they had other responsibilities. And they had network issues because they didn't have stable network connections or they were using a laptop that was 10 years old and it wouldn't work consistently. And I think faculty in general have become much more aware of the challenges of our students. I'm hopeful, at least, that that's not going to disappear and that that could help lead to more consistent support of students once we do return to whatever the new normal happens to be as we move back to more campus instruction. I'm really hoping that faculty, given this kind of acknowledgement of a wide variety of struggles, will really work together and push administrators and push universities and push systems to change. Because if we don't speak up together in a unified way, it's not going to happen. Yeah, Paulo Freire and Bell Hooks both talk about what they describe as critical hope, that hope is an action that we take, not a passive state, that hope is a work, that it hope is struggle. And just that idea that hope isn't passive, we don't sit back and wait and hope. Instead, we take the action of hope. And Maxine Green, also a critical pedagogue, talks about imagining the world as though it could be otherwise. And so her word there is imagination. Again, something active. Imagining the world as though it could be otherwise requires us to recognize our agency and how we can have a positive impact and a positive effect. And so pushing back where we can, drawing students into these conversations where we are able insisting that student voices be centered in these conversations. These are things that we can do and that will have a necessarily good impact. Even when we're precarious and where we feel like our job might be at risk, there are still actions that we can take. And it's a matter of figuring out how do I engage in the work of hope or the work of imagination. See, we got to a more positive place. <laughs> Just give us a few minutes. <laughs> <laughs> One of the things you're really known for is your work on ungrading and creating an environment that's more conducive to learning. Could you just talk a little bit about that? So I'll just say that I have been quote unquote ungrading for 21 years. It's a practice that I started my first semester of teaching, and it's a practice that has grown and changed over time. But I often say that I have never put a grade on a piece of student work in my career. Truth is that that's not exactly true because I love co-teaching. And when you co-teach, you negotiate a pedagogy with your co-teacher. And so I have put grades on individual students' work, but it was always a discussion and a sort of process that I came to with another teacher. 
The interesting thing is that I've been doing this work as part of my practice for 21 years, but I didn't start talking about it publicly. I mean, beyond just having conversations about it publicly, I didn't start publicly writing about it, giving keynotes about it, etc. until 2017. So four years ago that I really started writing publicly about this. Ungrading was a word that I had used, but it wasn't something that an entire way of my pedagogical thought was centered around. So it has been interesting to watch the transition in me as I've moved towards talking about this more publicly. And I'll tell you the reasons I didn't talk about it publicly. I was a road warrior adjunct for about nine years of my teaching, teaching at up to four institutions, nine classes a term, dealing with the rules and restrictions at four different institutions. And I also felt like my pedagogical approach to grading felt like something between me and the students I was working with. It was no one else's business. It was a conversation I had with them, and I felt like I wanted to protect that space for students and me to work through that together. The reason that I changed my thinking and started writing more publicly is because over the last 20 years, I've watched education become increasingly quantitative. I've watched the reliance on learning management systems, which turn students into rows in a spreadsheet and their work into columns in a spreadsheet. I've watched institutions grade and evaluate their teachers in increasingly quantifiable ways. And then I've watched, obviously, the turn towards algorithms and the internet of things and weird tools like plagiarism detection software that, again, feels like it reduces us to cogs and reduces our work to bits, ones and zeros. And so I felt the need to create a larger conversation and dialogue on this because increasingly I recognized that grades were the biggest thorn in the side of critical pedagogy and the biggest thorn in the side of my pedagogy. And so many people felt like we're increasingly struggling with grades as the thing that got in the way of them creating productive relationships with students. And ultimately, when I started writing about it, I was amazed at the response. And to some degree, I feel like there were so many people that had hit that wall and that were feeling that increased quantification over many, many years, almost like frogs boiling in a pot of water. And the other amazing thing was how much conversations with the larger community of teachers, a larger community of students helped continue to evolve and change my practice. I guess one of the other reasons I started writing and talking about it more publicly was because I needed a push. I needed students and colleagues to ask me to work even harder, to ask even harder questions of myself. And the last thing I'll say is that ungrading is just a word. The one thing I can't stand about the word ungrading is it tries to take a huge variety of practices that push back on traditional grading and tries to lump them into one word as though there is ungrading TM you know, the thing Jesse invented and that you can buy from him for $19.99, three <laughs> payments, and that he'll deliver it to you. And it will be a stack of 20 best practices that if you implement will change your life and make your relationships with students better. And that's just not the way pedagogy works. That's not the way teaching works. And that's certainly not the way something as complex as assessment works. And so ultimately, this has to be an ongoing dialogue conversation between teachers, between teachers and students. And what works for one teacher in one context with one group of students won't necessarily work neat and tidily for another. You mentioned that your practice has evolved in some way. Could you talk a little bit about how your practice is involving it? I don't want to say ungrading again. <laughs> <laughs> no, I did help coin the term, okay. so I'm all right with us using the word ungrading. I think it is good for us to have a word for us to rally these conversations around because we need the energy and the catalyzing force that that term has caused. And so it's useful and productive in that way. 
So I've done self-evaluation, asking students to write process letters, to analyze their own learning, to reflect on their own learning. I've asked them to reflect on group and peer learning. And I've asked them to grade themselves. And over the course of my career, I almost always give students the grade they give themselves. For the most part, when I change a grade, it's to raise the grade, especially in situations where I feel like bias has influenced the grades. The thing is, bias, even self-internalized bias, affects how we review and evaluate our performance. And the thing that I've changed most about is I've started to get this nagging feeling that when I have students self-evaluate and self-grading, that I'm taking everything that I don't like about grades, everything that the research shows is ineffective about grades, everything that is emotionally harmful about grades and giving grades, and taking that and kind of passing the buck onto students. And so my project in ungrading or my project in my own assessment practice has always been to turn grades over on their back and inspect them and ask hard questions of them and wonder at them and raise our eyebrows at them so that we feel like we have more agents within a quantified system like we work in. And I don't think I can necessarily do that by just taking all the problems of grades and passing that over to students. So I've started to rethink how I ask students to do that work of grading themselves. One of the things that I found is over so many years giving A, A minus, B plus, B, B minus, is that when students went to grade themselves, they would give themselves something like, oh, it's either an A plus or an A minus or it's a B plus. And they would quibble these tiny details, which that kind of evidence suggests to me that I had passed the anxiety of grades and quantification onto them. And so recently, in the last two years, I've removed a minuses and pluses from the approach that I use. And I tell students, just round up. And it's interesting because the second that I did that, students stopped quibbling the tiny details. And this is really drawn from some writing by Peter Elbow, where he writes specifically about minimal grading, which taking a 100-point scale or a 1,000-point scale and reducing it to a 10-point scale or a 5-point scale or a 3-2, 1-point scale. And the more we reduce it, the more clear it becomes and the more it communicates and the more effective it is as an assessment tool. And so giving students less gradations to quibble about. But on the other hand, I also recognize that these are decisions that I'm making, that I still have power in the classroom and trying to think about and inspect my own power and privilege in the classroom and how I can begin to at least dismantle that, not to remove it because I think classrooms need strong leaders, but at least to dismantle it enough that I'm leaving space for students to sort of carve out their own space within their educations. Seems to me that a lot of the ungrading work is really tied to this idea of flexibility that you've talked about pretty frequently, being flexible as a teacher and offering options, but is also unpopular in frameworks like EDL. But I also know that the idea of providing flexibility can cause a lot of anxiety to a faculty member in trying to figure out how to do that and make it manageable and make it sustainable. Can you share some ideas about making that a sustainable practice and also what you mean by flexible options for students? Yeah, so the interesting thing is flexible does become more complicated if we are engaging in the work of teaching as a form of policing student learning, or even not policing, just monitoring even, monitoring student learning, or collecting or gathering student learning, or gathering evidence for student learning. The second that we as teachers move away from that role of feeling like we are the evaluators, we are meant to rank students, we're there to police their learning, we're there to ensure compliance, 
which honestly, even good teachers, so much of that is baked into just how our system is structured that we do it without even realizing that we're doing it. Even the structure and shape of a syllabus has so much of that baked into it. I think that flexibility becomes a lot easier when you hand that over to the students. So people often say, oh, well, you let your students do five different things for an assignment, or you let them just pick something, anything. And I say, well, I don't let them. I invite them to do that, first of all. Second of all, well, then how do you manage all the different things you get at different times? I say, well, I don't consider myself the primary audience for student work. I create a space in my course where they can share this work with one another and they can give one another feedback. And then, well, gosh, how do you deal with all of the requests that you might get? I don't ask my students to ask permission. I invite them to modify, remix, to take advantage of flexibility. So in other words, the more that I remove my bureaucratic burden, the more flexibility becomes super easy. Because if a student says to me, well, can I? I can say, of course you can. I invite you to change, remix. In some ways, I don't even have to do the work of considering the request because the request isn't necessary to the relationship. I'm sort of there to offer feedback to students and to be surprised and to marvel at whatever it is that they end up doing for the course. The other thing that we often do is we think that our role is to rank students against one another. That's one of the reasons why I can't stand rubrics, because I feel like the entire structure of a rubric is set up to put student work into neat and tidy boxes. And when we do that, we essentially are ranking students against one another. And so if one student does something that is just in a completely different universe from another, how do you assure that they both earned the A? Well, ultimately, if you just remove the idea that our work is to compare students to one another, one student does a traditional academic paper, and the other gives you a piece of installation art that moves around campus and that you can't even quite make sense of it. You don't have to hold them up and say, well, how do I really justify giving that piece of performance art an A? You take it on its own merit and you recognize what it is and you marvel at it and you allow yourself to be surprised by it. The more flexible I am, the more fun teaching ends up being. People often, when I say things like that, think, oh, your class is just chaos. And actually, no, I'm a pretty type A person. I'm pretty OCD. I actually structure a really neat and tidy syllabus. The structure of my course is very organized, partly because I I sort of subscribe to improvisation within a frame, which I take from the jazz music, but I don't know much about jazz. So feel free to tell me if I've interpreted that completely wrongly. But this idea that we need a frame and a structure in order to improvise within it. And so You set up the sort of guardrails for students. To some extent, they're boundaries, but it's more like they're guardrails. You set them up so that students feel like they can experiment within the space of the classroom. And then to some extent, it allows you and gives you the freedom to play without worrying if you're just going to go completely off the deep end. You mentioned being surprised by some of the things your students have come up with as ways of demonstrating their learning. Could you give us just a few examples of some of the more interesting projects your students have selected? I kind of alluded to it in our last conversation, but this was at University of Mary Washington, and the assignment was to reinvent, rebuild the internet. And the assignment had a very short prompt that gave space for students to interpret the instructions in so many different ways. And the answer to this assignment for a group of students was to create a pile of trash. And that pile of trash had multicolored bits of crumpled paper in it. And it was a piece of installation art that migrated around campus. 
And they took pictures of it in different locations around campus. And then at one point, it showed up in our classroom. And they wrote an artist statement that talked about the detritus of the web, the deep and dark web, and all the bits you can see and the bits you can't see. And that was marvelous. The sort of meat of the project was how captivating and how just seeing this thing and wondering at how this fit as an interpretation of the assignment. I often come into class and when I've just picked something like a reading or designed an assignment and I've kind of done it instinctually, maybe it's because I'm doing that reading for the first time, I'll often go into class and I'll say, why did I choose this reading? And I'll mean that honestly. It's not a rhetorical question. It's like, this is the first time I've taught this and I'm trying to figure out whether it fits and how it fits. And so ultimately, that's what this group of students project did for me, is it forced me to ask myself, oh, gosh, what is this course even about? And to me, (laughs) that project managed to get at the biggest question of the course, which is what are we even doing here? Why are we talking about the internet? And for me, that was marvelous. On the other hand, another teacher might look at this pile of trash and say, hey, that's just a pile of trash. And so there's something idiosyncratic about how we engage with student work. I've also read really, really good academic papers. And so even some of those have surprised me, in part because sometimes it's that punctum in an academic paper where the academic paper is just going along, going through the motions of a traditional academic paper, and then it just veers. And then you have this moment like Roland Barthes' punctum where all you can see, you almost have it burned into your retina, this sort of moment of friction within the work. And truthfully, those are the most interesting parts of education in general, is the parts where we do something that we weren't expecting or where students turn something in that we never would have imagined for a particular assignment. One of the things that sometimes comes up with flexibility is not just the trepidation of a faculty member, but also of students. When there's a lot of option available, students sometimes can freeze and not know what to do. You mentioned the guardrails. So how do those function or how do you make sure that those students that are overwhelmed by choice feel included? One thing is to have very clear parameters. And I tend to have really short provocations for students. Let's call them provocations instead of assignments, because even the idea of assignment suggests a transactional relationship between a teacher and students. I still haven't found quite the right word. Invitation doesn't feel strong enough, but maybe provocation is what it is. So I try and be very, very clear to have very explicit instructions and also to have them very short. I find that so often we create assignment sheets that end up being longer than the papers themselves. I've seen two-page responses that have an assignment sheet that's three or four pages describing what students should do in their two-page response paper. And I think partly we do that because we're anxious about the questions that we'll get, and we're anxious about students falling through the cracks, when what happens is the more words that we put in our assignments or provocations, whatever you want to call them, I think for the purposes here, I'll keep calling them assignments. I think that's fine. We fill our assignments up with language that's all there in some ways defensively, but every single word we put in there is a pothole that a student might fall into. It's a rabbit hole a student might fall down. And I find that the shorter my assignment descriptions are, the less questions I get. The longer they are, the more questions they get. And people just think, well, if I just answer all the questions in advance, then I won't get any questions. And that isn't how it ends up working out because students are really worried about what our expectations are. And I think we have to break that down. And the reason that a student feels overwhelmed by choice is because they're worried about meeting our expectations. And so we have to make sure that in our language, we make clear, this isn't about my expectations. It's about what you expect of yourself. 
And here's the thing. I don't necessarily know that works if we're using traditional grading systems. Because ultimately, if you're putting a grade on a thing, your expectations are what matters. But if you're giving over some or even all of that work to students, it starts to break down this idea. They recognize, oh, he's not grading this anyway. So this really is about my expectations. And if when I engage with the work, rather than approving of it or disapproving of it, instead, I encounter it the way a reader would, by having a reaction to it and telling students what my reaction is. And then I encourage students to do that for each other. Peter Elbow talks about ranking, evaluating, and liking. Ranking being the thing that we shouldn't do. We shouldn't rank students against one another. Evaluating being a thing that still has a place because certainly there are times when students do need some amount of evaluation from an external mentor. I think those moments are much fewer than we end up doing. And then he talks about liking, which is just giving ourselves space to appreciate student work, to not have to evaluate it, to just enjoy it and to respond to it, and to be an expert reader for students. Could you elaborate on that notion of being an expert reader for students? What sort of feedback do you provide them as an expert reader? Well, I think one of the things is that so much of our, so many of our traditional grading systems call for us to be objective. And we can probably have a whole other podcast around objectivity versus subjectivity and whether they're even possible. There's a lot of research that shows the idea of objective grading is just a fallacy to begin with. But I think that it's about allowing ourselves to have a subjective response, allowing ourselves to bring our full humanity to that moment of engaging with student work, to laugh at it, to wonder at it, to marvel at it, to be silent, to be struck silent, to raise our eyebrows at it, to ask hard questions of it. And so what that might actually look like with a group of students is letting them see me puzzling over it, letting them see me just work through my thinking about what I'm seeing. And so oftentimes I have students do sort of expos in class where they bring all of their work and they just lay it out, whether it's a paper, whether it's a pile of trash, whether it's a video, whether it's a documentary, they lay their work out and we just hang out together and go around and look at each other's work. And what I sort of see my role there is just to model what it looks like to appreciate the efforts that they've made and to encounter their work and talk about my experience of it, as opposed to saying, oh, you did this well, this needs improvement, to sort of hold back that this needs improvement. Because there are moments when that's really important, but then other moments where it isn't. For example, I taught first year writing for a long time. And in first year college writing, It's not getting to success. It's about just getting comfortable writing, just getting comfortable in your skin as a writer. And that means not a lot of that kind of evaluative feedback. It means more just here's what happens to me when I encounter your words. Some of what we've been talking about with this flexibility and ungrading is really starting to get a sense that individual students and members of a learning community really being members and belonging to that community. Can you elaborate on ways, in addition to this flexibility idea, that might help students from a wide variety of backgrounds feel like they belong, especially those that we saw during the pandemic and we know they existed before that, really struggling or having barriers and helping them really feel like you really do belong here. You really should be here. We want you here. I think that we do that from the very beginning and how we structure education at so many of our institutions. The reliance on the idea of seat time, classes that meet two days a week, Tuesday and Thursday for a set amount of hours, classes that meet Monday, Wednesday, Friday, really 
bizarre ways of thinking about hybrid learning or online learning where there's too much of a reliance on synchronous engagement. Ultimately, when we make those kinds of decisions with how we structure education at our institutions, we're telling whole swaths of students, this isn't built for you, this isn't made for you. And increasingly, people talk about adult learners. Well, at the college level, all of our students are adult learners. And increasingly, the vast majority of them are working adult learners. And we're not doing enough to structure education so that it acknowledges their experience. I had a student who was disabled. He had chronic migraines. And luckily, at the time, I worked at an institution where I was developing a new hybrid degree program. And I, in a sense, developed the program, not just for him, but for all of the students I was working with who were like him in various ways, who had no access to education without serious rethinking about how we build our curriculum. So thinking about when we move online, relying increasingly on asynchronous ways for students to engage asynchronously, because most of the students who turn to online need more flexibility. Their time is not their own in many cases. And when we're designing degree programs, rethinking things like the 15-week semester, rethinking things like seat time, rethinking things like classes that meet Monday, Wednesday, Friday for 50 minutes over the course of a 15-week period. Honestly, I increasingly think that's absurd. What a weird structure. 50 minutes, three times a week? How is where a student is at on Monday any different than where they're at on Wednesday? Is 50 minutes really enough time for us to develop the kinds of thinking that we're trying to get at in our courses? Ultimately, I think just asking ourselves, are we continuing to teach students in the way that we are just because this is the way we have always done it? Or is this actually what will help students learn and give space for students to learn? Also, if we go back to those adjuncts, when I was a road warrior adjunct, trying to teach a Monday, Wednesday, Friday class that met for 50 minutes, that was 45 minutes from my house, trying to fit that into my schedule with my other eight classes was nearly impossible. What I needed more than anything was not just one approach. I needed to be able to teach one course asynchronously, one course on a Tuesday, Thursday schedule. So I needed a variety of different things in my schedule. And that's what a lot of students are needing. The students at my institution, where I'm currently teaching, still at University of Mary Washington, so many of them are quote-unquote traditional students who want face-to-face interaction. And so the institution says, we are on-ground residential institution. We will be back full-time Everyone will be back at their desks in the fall. But that's not what the students actually want. The students want most of their educational experience to be face-to-face, but they're struggling to fill a schedule because they're also working. And so they need to be able to take some courses online, some courses hybrid, some courses face-to-face. And they really want to be able to build a much more thoughtful approach to education. And also when we think about specific classes, some disciplines, some courses lend themselves to one format, some lend themselves to another. So I think that that's the way we invite students in is from the start, actually building with the students and not just for the students. Building for those students would be great, but also finding ways to build with them and to design curriculum alongside of them so it really meets their needs and challenges them appropriately. One of the things that's going to be a bit different this fall is that we're going to have some students who are sophomores even who've never been on campus. And most students have not been interacting in person in classrooms for the last year and a half or so. What can we do to help create a sense of community when we bring these people together for the first time after this long break from face-to-face interaction? 
The first thing I'm thinking about is something that I started saying from the very, very start of the quote unquote pivot to online. Right around the beginning of the lockdown last year, I started to say, we need to make sure that it isn't continuity of instruction that we're trying to maintain, but continuity of the communities at the heart of our institutions. I don't know if many institutions figured out how to support those communities online. I think they figured out how to keep the lights on and to keep people taking classes, but I don't necessarily know that the communities were maintained. What I worry about as we return to campus is that we will try and pick up right where we left with that continuity of instruction, rather than realizing that where we need to most place our efforts is not just starting up the wheel of delivering content to students. What we need to do is figure out how to revitalize those communities. And that needs to be a huge part of our efforts. So if every teacher is imagining that they're going to go back to teaching the same amount of content that they taught before the pandemic, one, they were probably trying to teach too much. They were probably teaching too much at the expense of developing community even two years ago. But recognizing that we need to put a lot more breathing room into our courses and also a lot more conversation between courses, because communities don't just exist in a vacuum. You don't just have a community in your first period class and then a community in your second period class. Community is living, breathing, and it sort of echoes between those spaces. So thinking about what happens between period one and period two, how are those two courses connected? What are students doing on campus? Where is the life of the institution? And how can we invest as much as possible into supporting that? And I don't think it's with algorithmic retention software. That is the worst possible thing that I see institutions turning to to try and support community. Algorithms are not going to help us build and maintain community. Human beings are the ones who are good at that. So any dollar you're spending on an algorithmic retention software, please give that to adjunct and contingent instructors. In terms of reducing the amount of content in classes, I think a lot of faculty realize that when they switch to remote or online instruction. Is that something you think people will automatically recognize, or do you think people are going to try to go back to how things were before and forget the lessons that they've learned about this during the pandemic? I think a lot of individual faculty, individual teachers, individual students will take so many of these lessons back to their work this fall and beyond. I think institutions are much harder to shift. And so the problem is I don't know that institutional culture will change in the way that it needs to in order to support the efforts of those students and faculty. And so this is really a charge to institutions and administrators to put that breathing room also in the institutional culture in important ways. And maybe even really to push it within a department, because that might be a place where faculty can start to expand it out and think about it. When you were talking, I was imagining a time that seems so long ago now, may have been 10 years ago. It seems like a really long time now. (laughs) Yeah, it feels like it's either a week ago or like 10 years ago to me. I had colleagues that we would, if we had classes at the same time, we would actually schedule activities together. We would cross-pollinate to have some of that community. We'd have design challenges and investigate and do different things with each other. We've lost some of that play. Just over time with assessment requirements and this and that, it has fizzled. So I'm hoping that this fall will bring back the play, bring back the fun for that community to marinate a little bit. And if I can think of some really practical things institutions can do in order to seed that community that you're describing, 
If your institution is not paying adjuncts and contingent staff for faculty development, it needs to. Even Walmart and Subway and Starbucks pays their employees for required job training. But then the other benefit is that those are the spaces where community germinates. Another example is there are so many barriers to collaborative teaching at our institutions. Oh, well, who's going to get the credit for it? Whose load is it going to count towards? If that's your answer to collaborative teaching, you need to stop right there and ask yourself, what kind of environment are we trying to create? And if we want a collaborative environment, if we want a community amongst our faculty, then write that in there, decide and commit yourself to figuring out the obstacles to collaborative teaching, which I've watched get worse and worse and worse over the last 21 years that I've been teaching. And those are just two small things. And the truth is they're relatively easy. There are bureaucratic systems that feel like you can't possibly. How are we going to deal with that within our institutional database? Like, get over it, figure it out. The truth is that those are things that we all know we want. I've never talked to somebody who says, no, no, we don't want people collaborative teaching. Then why don't institutions charge themselves to figure that out? So many good questions raised in this conversation, Jesse. As always, I wouldn't expect anything different with a conversation with you. We always wrap up by asking, what's next? Oh, wow. That's a really, really large question. What's next? Okay, well, I'm going to say that as some folks listening to this may not know, my husband and I and my four-year-old daughter just opened a game and toy store, which has a classroom and a makerspace in it. And I am really thinking about how helping my husband with this endeavor is going to push me to think about my teaching in new ways. So it's a small retail space, 1,600 square feet on the main street at Littleton with a retail section and a classroom and a makerspace. We're going to offer classes for kids and adults so that it isn't just about selling people toys and games, but teaching them how to design and make and manufacture their own toys and games. And it feels like a respite for me in some ways. One, to have my own project that I'm focusing on, but also to have a space where nobody's telling me I have to grade. I just get to decide how I approach the work inside this space. So I'm excited to see how helping my husband with this project informs the rest of my practice and thinking about education. That sounds so fun. Can I come? Yeah, 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 you can. (laughs) Do you want to be a teacher? We haven't hired our first teacher. (laughs) That sounds really fun, actually. I've taught makerspace things before with kids. Sounds totally fun. And I guess that what's next is to find joy in this work because the last 18 months have been so hard. And I think that joy, Bell Hooks also writes a lot about joy. Joy is also a practice. Joy is also struggle. But figuring out how to find the kernel of the work of teaching that has kept me doing this work for 21 years, that's really something I feel charged to do. Perhaps a charge we should all have moving into the fall. Yeah, I'm determined to become an irascible optimist again. We'll see. Check back with me in a year. Maybe I'll have gotten there. (laughs) And perhaps shifting some of our focus away from grading can help restore some of that joy. Absolutely. Indeed, indeed. (laughs) Thanks so much, Jesse. If you've enjoyed this podcast, please subscribe and leave a review on iTunes or your favorite podcast service. To continue the conversation, join us on our Tea for Teaching Facebook page. You can find show notes, transcripts, and other materials on tforteaching.com. Music by Michael Gary Brewer.